0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. States are figuring out what President Trump's budget proposal means for them, Colorado included. It calls for a big boost in defense spending and cuts virtually everywhere else. It's the first topic I tackled with Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper in our regular interview at the state capitol. Governor, welcome back to the program. Glad to be back. After this plan was introduced, you said that your administration has reached out to Colorado's congressional delegation to ensure that, quoting here, Colorado's values and priorities are protected. Where specifically do you
1: believe those values and priorities are in danger? Well, I'm no stranger to difficult budgets. That being said, if you look at things like the EPA, uh, which play a large role in making sure that we have clean air, clean water, uh, that we continue to make progress away from the days of the brown cloud, those days are hopefully long behind us. This was a cloud that often sat over the city of Denver. Yeah, exactly. For long, I mean days at a time with if you had any kind of respiratory problems, very very serious issues. We're very concerned about the cuts to agriculture, the grant and and loan programs for water to make sure there's safe supplies of water. They're going to they would most likely if those cuts were made have to shut down a number of offices getting rid of the USAID purchases for foreign aid. That would have directly affect the prices of corn and wheat in this state, which we're already at some of the lowest commodity prices. You know, this whole notion of using this budget to continue to look towards a stronger dollar. A stronger dollar makes it harder for farmers to export uh, what they grow and what they raise. So, again, with already low commodity prices to put further downward pressure on them. And you kind of have to look at the the budget not just by itself, but at the same time we're doing the budget, we're kind of throwing a great deal of uncertainty about our trade relationships with some of our major import-export partners like Canada and, and Mexico, especially for our agriculture products. Again, you take away some of your markets in which you sell your exports, you're going to get worse prices. That's just the way the system works. So I think agriculture, I was shocked. I mean, what did rural Colorado ever do to hurt uh, President Trump? What did they ever do to President Trump except vote for him, right? They, they were a big part of the momentum behind his campaign. And in many ways, this is really some serious losses. You talked to Don Brown, our commissioner of agriculture, and I think you could say he was shocked.
0: Is this a bit doomsday? So you're talking about the quality of water, that a brown cloud could return, that there could be hard times ahead for farmers. Meanwhile, the administration says a lot of what it's doing is to spur job growth and remove regulation on industry. That there are any number of ways that lives could improve for Colorado?
1: Well, I mean, this is a budget. The president lays it out. The system's not that different than what we have here in the Colorado, in the state of Colorado, where the governor lays out the budget, and then the legislature dramatically changes it. Uh, and they really have the final word. And I think Congress is going to have a, a strong difference here. This notion that getting rid of regulations is somehow going to spur job growth in some cases may be true, but in many cases it's not. And initial regulations that people rebelled against at the time of having seatbelts, right, universal seatbelts everywhere. Well, once you get the system of putting those seatbelts in and, and, and gear up to it, cutting that regulation doesn't really do much good.
0: I think that some would argue that the regulations they're talking about aren't potentially as common sense as restraining someone in a moving automobile.
1: If you're removing regulations and you can demonstrate that that's going to make the air less clean, it's going to allow more pollutants, more particulates, more ozone, more pollutants of all kinds into the air... You may, we're not necessarily going back to the brown cloud, but if you've got a child who's got respiratory issues, you can feel fairly confident that over a period of time, those ailments are going to get worse. I, I'm not trying to be in doom and gloom. I'm just saying you, you really, your air's and your water is either getting cleaner or it's getting worse. It nothing stays the same in this life.
0: The proposed cut to the Environmental Protection Agency is 31%. Uh, which programs that are now federally funded would be priorities for the state to step in and... Fund.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure. The, you may have missed this, but we're going through a $700 million budget balancing exercise here. Because of Tabor, we can't pick up the slack in the same way that some other states can. Uh, we don't have anywhere near that flexibility. So uh, we look at the grants, uh, large number of the grant programs that come from the EPA, the Superfund sites, right? The the these are for highly toxic places that need cleaning up. Right, we've had sites that have been waiting for more than twenty years to get, and we thought we were getting close to where the funding was going to be brought together, and now all of a sudden it looks like that could be pushed off indefinitely. You know, in many cases, these polluting uh, old mines or or former extraction industry are continuing to pour polluted water into our systems, and pushing the solution off into the future is probably not a great idea.
0: The president's proposal also calls for billions of dollars in cuts to research spending nationally. Colorado's a research hub, both through the federal labs like the National Renewable Energy Laboratory and grants to institutions like CU. The Trump administration says it will focus federal money on early stage applied energy research, the fundamental science that's the building block that may lead to development of new products, Uh, Once that early research is done, should private companies be expected to pick up a bigger share of the research tab?
1: Well, it's funny that because in Colorado we really have pushed. Part of the Colorado Innovation Network, what we call COIN, was set up to take all those university laboratories and all those federal labs and the innovations and ideas that come out of them and try to have the state and business be better partners at taking a good idea and turning it into jobs. I think the president is saying he's going to fund Early research and then leave it for the states. So we're already doing that. I don't think it's going to affect mm. us too much, one way or the other. We've got a pretty good ecosystem of of getting research to market. I'm not. This this is not a sky is falling moment. Although I will say I'm I'm very concerned about the level of the cuts and the direction they are. But you know, Colorado also has a large uh, military presence and a lot of you know, high-level research going on around military. I'm glad you you mentioned
0: it, because a lot of these cuts are to make room in the federal budget for more military spending, right? uh, to the tune of some $54 billion. Uh, And indeed, that's a 10% increase. We've got major military installations here, and as you said, contractors working on military projects. So do you see elements in this budget that would actually help Colorado?
1: It could help again. There's not there are no specifics or very few specifics that would give an indication of how much net positive or net benefit. But again, I am concerned. Our economic recovery has been profound, right? Since since 2007 2008, we've come back with a fury, and by most measures, we're one of the either the top or one of the top economies in the country. What we're really focused on is how do we get and make sure that economic growth and success gets translated into rural parts of Colorado, into the lower-income communities. I don't see much support in President Trump's budget to help us raise up rural Colorado economies, to help us get them better prices for their products. I don't see many places where it's going to help us get into lower-income communities and do a better job of educating, training, uh, getting those uh, young kids ready for the jobs that are going to be a available. Are you
0: saying in, in that regard a defense boost of this size is misguided given the kind of promises that the president made on the campaign trail?
1: I, I would say that I think, and I've heard this from a number of people, that there's a level of disappointment. I'm not criticizing how much of one side or the other. We haven't seen the details yet, but many people who have talked to me and they are experts on it from a variety of perspectives say that there's a level of disappointment that that the increase in the military was—I was, mean, President Obama was going to increase it a certain amount, a significant amount—and this is going considerably past what he suggested. I, I think to, to make all these cuts in the EPA, in, in workforce training, in support for education—you know, taking away all these funds for research, which is you know part of the foundation of our higher education—it's tough. I'm glad you mentioned Colorado's
0: economic recovery. Uh, which, what what were your words? You said it was not quite miraculous, but... uh,
1: Well, we certainly, I mean, U.S. News & World Report came out a a week ago and said we have the number one economy in the United States. If that's the case, I want to ask you about Medicaid,
0: because the future of that government health care program for the poor is in question. How is it that in a state that's prospering, as you say it is, one in four Coloradans is on Medicaid? Well, the unemployment rate right here is 2.9%. It's the lowest since 2001. Do that many people need to be on subsidized
1: care? Again, this is one of the big arguments around uh, minimum wage. And, and the estimate these days is for uh, the total homeless population, 30 to 40% of them are working more than 30 hours a week. And that some, somewhere close to 20% are working 40 hours a week. Right, So it's not the vision most people have as someone sitting around you know, on a uh, busy thoroughfare panhandling for loose change. These are people working, and, and we don't pay people enough.
0: And yet Coloradans did raise the minimum wage in the last we did. election. And
1: I think that, that that will have some benefit. But that, in terms of things like Medicaid, where raising the minimum wage gives people $1,000 or $2,000 a year, there are many people who are far out of reach for Medicaid. And that's one of the challenges. As technology evolves... It is one of the greatest concentrators of wealth that we have ever seen. It's probably been more than 100 years since we've seen this level of concentration of wealth. And you kind of have to expect that you're going to see more people struggling to be able to afford rent, more people being able to afford health care. I mean, this is one of the challenges we've got to address.
0: And yet, won't you hear from some Republicans that there are people on Medicaid who don't need to be?
1: And I've heard the same examples that there are some people on Medicaid that, were offered a raise and wouldn't take that raise because then it would put them up and it would take them off Medicaid. And and I'm the first person to say, let's get to a sliding scale. There shouldn't be this cliff effect where, you know, someone gets an extra $2,000 a year raise, suddenly they lose so many benefits that the raise isn't worth it. We should be providing everyone an incentive to keep succeeding and working better and trying to get a raise and a promotion. uh, And Medicaid should be part of that system. I mean, it's the 21st century. Can't we figure out the technology to have a sliding scale?
0: The Colorado Health Institute says that under the Republican proposal in Congress, Colorado would lose roughly a billion dollars over the next year. Um, That's if the federal government drops down to paying 50% of Medicaid costs, as it did before Obamacare. Uh, The same institute says 600,000 patients could lose Medicaid by 2030, and that a lot of them might just go uninsured. Uh, This harkens back to a previous question I asked you, but is there some sense that the state could pick up more of the tab? If not, who would absolutely be the priority to keep and who would be the first to be cut if the state was making those decisions? Well, we
1: haven't even begun an assessment uh, because for the life of me, I can't imagine that, that this country wants to go backwards and roll Back coverage. Still
0: early days, it sounds Still like. Still early days. <laughs> in, 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 the administ- in your own administration and in that well, administration, to, you know, in, in the terms last, of this conversation.
1: In the last couple of weeks, I've talked with several Republican governors uh, who have expanded Medicaid, and they feel just as strongly as I do that they should not roll back coverage. Uh, and which, I, which
0: ones? Which Republican governors?
1: Uh, well, I don't want to get anybody in trouble because sometimes talking to a Democrat these days could be the kiss of death, but they're from. Large states that did expand Medicaid coverage, you can can do the math. There's not that many. But I think the the, the fact remains, in those states, someone may get a congressperson to vote for this. I don't think they're going to get senators to vote for it.
0: One last uh, point about the uh, administration in Washington. Uh, President Trump has said that he'll propose a $1 trillion infrastructure program uh, and tax cuts. He says this will stimulate the economy, create jobs... If those things are happening in concert with what we've discussed thus far, is this budget blueprint such a body
1: blow? Well, so far there's been no details about his infrastructure program. And as I understand... There has been
0: some Republican skepticism in Congress.
1: Exactly. I don't see anything in this budget that's going to free up the money to do infrastructure at the scale that he has described. I don't see a trillion dollars anywhere in this budget that's going to come out of uh, thin air. Let's talk about another budget. And that's the one you have a bit more uh, influence
0: over, uh, the state budget. There is currently a scramble to balance it. And um, your office is predicting up to a $700 million shortfall in the seventeen eighteen budget. What are the options for bringing it into balance? Well, uh, it's the same
1: things that we've been doing. I mean, we've tried to cut you sound weary when you say that. <laughs> you know, in elected office, having to, to do budget cuts is the steep part of the hill. And it's hard. You're trying to decide between people whose children have different types of challenges. You're trying to make decisions between infrastructure that's vital for the future of jobs, but at the same time making sure we have comprehensive medical care so that, that people don't get left behind. You, you say cuts. I'll, I'll say that
0: Republicans would say there's not so much cuts here as not as quick
1: of growth. That, that overall, the, the, the state budget from year to year grows. Sure, of course. It grows by inflation plus population growth. We've been doing that for, almost, for more than 20 years. These are under and, constitutional limits. Yes, and, and successfully, I don't mind pointing out. One of the few states where you can look at As our economy has been booming these last seven or eight years, we have restrained our our growth. But let me give you a couple of examples where that's not going to always hold true. One is transportation infrastructure. I'll tell you another place we're going to run into trouble is the number of individuals turning 65. And just for the record, I have now turned 65, so I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Now you're an expert. Now I'm an expert. And, you know, there's no question when you look at the statistics – Older Coloradans are going to re- require more support, more financial support, than younger. So even though our population doesn't change, let's imagine that the population is flat. By 2025, they're saying that the, the number of people 65 or over could be up close to 50%. Some people said 60%, you know, compared to 2010. That is a significant growth And a huge demand for resources. I'm glad you brought up transportation. So at the start of the legislative session,
0: you and the leaders of both houses made increased transportation funding a priority. Uh, Now those leaders, Democratic House Speaker Crisanta Duran and Republican Senate President Kevin Grantham, have agreed on a proposal to ask voters for a six-tenth of a cent sales tax for roads for 20 years. That said, both of Grantham's Republican deputies have said they'll oppose it, <laughs> as have conservatives in the House. Their argument is that more or all of the money for road improvements should come from the existing state
1: budget. Well, wait, wait. So, so I've invited everybody to come down and go through that budget. Everyone who said that, I said, hey, Henry Sobenet knows that budget as well as any human person. This is your budget director. My budget director, who's a Republican, right? Served under Bill Owens, was a budget director under Bill Owens. So... Let him walk anyone who's interested through that budget and see if you can find, and we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars a year. They might point to Medicaid, Governor. They might. And then you have to say, do we as a state want to roll back coverage on that many people? And most studies suggest that that's going to be more expensive in the long run.
0: Let me ask this. Do you support the plan that has been
1: fashioned thus far? What I support is the process. And, and, and let me just, on the, on the previous topic there, all the Republicans are saying they're going to come out and oppose this. All this, this legislation does is put it on the ballot. right? So they're saying they don't even want people to have the opportunity to vote on it. I want to go back before we wrap up to President
0: Trump. So you attended the National Governors Association meetings last month in Washington. Yeah. You didn't meet privately with the president, but you did attend meetings where he spoke. And after one of those meetings, you tweeted... Govs at White House, President Trump makes clear no roundup or deportation except serious criminals. A good day! Exclamation mark. Your exclamation mark. There are many signs from the administration that it is casting a wider net than serious criminals. Now, that will delight some and disappoint others. But do you have confidence in what you tweeted about Trump's immigration
1: outlook? Well, at that point, I was tweeting what he said, and he said it in no uncertain terms. On, we have a dinner on a Sunday night. It's a state formal state dinner, tuxedos, uh, all the governors and their spouses, the president and the first lady, all the cabinet come, and you, and you have this wonderful opportunity to talk to each other in casual terms. And that was eye-opening. And, he, and I will say he was charming. I mean, I w- he was different than any image of him I've ever seen on TV, self-deprecating, lots of humor. Well, that night at the dinner, he sat uh, next to Governor McAuliffe from Virginia and was very direct that we are not going to round up, detain, and deport uh, undocumented immigrants unless they are connected with serious crimes. And
0: what's your sense now of that?
1: Well, well, I think what's happened is that they've given a lot more uh, leeway, more responsibility to individual agents uh, of ICE out on the streets. And I think some of those agents have grudges or or, are out there acting on their own, maybe outside the, the, the protocols that Trump was hoping to have in place. How, how do you know that that's happening? Well, I've just heard stories of it, of, of people being you know, detained and then deported when there was no connection to a violent crime. There's no uh, uh, conviction there. Would you call those rogue actions? No, I don't think... Again, I don't know the, exactly what they're here, what communication is coming from the White House. But I will say the next morning... The president was asked again about immigration in front of all the governors, and this is with Vice President Pence, President Trump, and then all or most of his cabinet was there. Uh, Attorney General Sessions was not there. And to a person, they all said, we're not going to round up, detain, and deport undocumented immigrants without serious criminal activity. I mean, if you can't trust what your government says to you directly, then we've got some serious problems. Do you feel that you can trust this administration? Well, we're working on it. I think we have to be able to. I mean, we have to do everything that we can to be candid and transparent to the White House and let them know where the issues are that we really have the most problems with and that we have to trust that they will be direct and honest with us. Because if they're not, if our government is being deceitful to the states, then we've got some real, I mean, some very, very serious problems. And I think that you know we're going to work as hard as we can from our side to make sure that, that we build A relationship that's based on trust. Governor, thank you for being with us. You bet. Democrat John Hickenlooper
0: is governor of Colorado. Our regular conversation was recorded Tuesday at his office. One update on transportation funding. As we mentioned, a proposed sales tax hike faces Republican opposition. Critics argue money should come from the current state budget. Late yesterday, the Colorado Independent reported that the second-ranking Republican in the state Senate, Jerry Sonnenberg of Sterling, will propose a way to make the state budget go further. It's essentially a bookkeeping change involving what's called the hospital provider fee. Republicans have long been against this change because it would cut refunds to taxpayers. Hickenlooper has supported such a move in the past. Lawmakers have about seven weeks to debate the idea before session ends. You can find a transcript of my interview with the governor at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.
2: And I'm Andrea Dukakis. Many Vietnam War-era veterans have waited decades for recognition. This Friday in Lakewood, dozens of Coloradans will be honored for their service. Daniel Barber, who lives in Lakewood, is one. He served as an Army artilleryman in South Vietnam near the Laotian border in 1969. He'd been there for two months when the North Vietnamese attacked his unit. So he climbed into the machine gun turret.
3: Before I could fire a shot, I was hit by fragments from a rocket-propelled grenade. I never saw it coming. Uh, just all of a sudden, I'm slammed
4: back and falling down into the vehicle.
2: Fragments ripped through his upper right arm and drove into his chest, puncturing his diaphragm and collapsing a lung. Five men were killed that day and 26 wounded. Barber ended up in a military hospital in Tokyo, where he was also diagnosed with malaria. His mother got a telegram about his injuries. She remembered that in World War II, a telegram meant your family member had been killed.
3: The telegram begins with the words, The Secretary of the Army wishes to express his deep regrets. It just about stopped her heart right there.
2: Needless to say, Barber's mom was relieved when she found out he'd survived. The damage to his right arm left him partially paralyzed. He spent nearly two years recovering at Fitzsimmons Army Hospital in Aurora. There he regained some use of his arm and was promoted to sergeant. He says he met his wife because he came to Colorado.
3: The whole life we have shared together would never have happened if I had not been wounded. Life can throw you a curve, but
2: sometimes you don't know what's going to be the outcome of that. Barber says the upcoming recognition ceremony means a lot to veterans who feel forgotten. The ceremony isn't just for veterans who served in Vietnam. They could have been stationed anywhere during that era. Another veteran who will be at Friday's ceremony is Kent Cruz of North Glen. He was a dog handler with the Army Military Police, first in Vietnam and then in Germany. Kent, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: You started in the military in 1972. Why did you enlist?
4: Well, uh, I was in junior college and I got a draft notice. And I had friends that were suggesting that the war was ending, that you shouldn't really serve because it was winding down and why be sacrificed and, you know, but I felt it was my country, my time. Uh, sometimes uh, you just don't know how things are going to happen. So I decided to cut all the, all the distractions out, and I enlisted. Uh, and I felt better about it because I knew you know, my, where I was going and, and what was going to happen to me.
2: You had an unusual career in the military as a dog handler, um, deployed briefly to Vietnam. What were dogs used for there?
4: Well, there was a couple purposes. There was three really uh, sentry dogs uh, patrolled the perimeter and you know in secured areas. There was also um, the drug dogs, which I was a part of drug dog handling and then we had the mine and tunnel dogs, which were extremely important they were called tunnel rats and uh, They got into the areas that the uh, Viet Cong would hide in at night, or uh, they were the refuge for them during uh, the heavy bombing that took place. So uh, those were the three areas that uh, dog handlers uh, participated in Vietnam.
2: So were the dogs in the tunnels seeking out the North Vietnamese so that you could find them?
4: Yes. So we would come along these tunnels, and uh, the dogs would be released into the tunnels to search. And that was their command to search, and they would alert us if somebody. But the uh, tunnel rats, as they were known, the the men that had would follow the dogs into the tunnels, and they'd have to, you know, uh, give commands to the dogs, let them know to come to them, search more. But uh, it was uh, if you're claustrophobic, it's not a very good uh, duty.
2: Then you headed to Germany. Uh, what did the army need dog handlers uh, for in Germany?
4: Well, there was, again, the problem of uh, drugs. Uh, you know, in Germany, it was hashish coming in from um, from Turkey. But not only with the hashish, it was heroin. And the heroin problem was a spillover from Vietnam. Um, some of the soldiers got uh, hooked on the heroin. It's very cheap. really. they put it on the cigarettes or the uh, marijuana cigarettes. And, and these guys would be transferred to Germany after the war. And some had heroin problem, which I felt was, uh, being, was not addressed at the time. So I cross-trained my dog at Ramstein Air Force Base with some of the Air Force dog handlers. And uh, we had a heroin sensory program for the U.S. Army, which I was very proud to be part of.
2: And I understand veterans returning home from Vietnam didn't always treat you very well.
4: Well, the veterans, they are processing. It was, it was a very rough time in this country, as you know. And, and, uh, Kent State had just happened and some, so there was a lot of people didn't understand what was going on. I, I guess the hardest spot, and I, I really thank Congressman Perlmutter on this is that coming home and a lot of them flew into Oakland or the San Francisco, there was always protesters there and, and soldiers that had done two, three, four tours of duty weren't given a, a, a very hospitable a homecoming. And uh, and I think that this this is kind of a good closure. This is something that I really applaud his efforts because I know there's now having I, – I know two sessions, maybe three, that, and so it's well-received by the Vietnam vets.
2: And I should say that Congressman Perlmutter is organizing these ceremonies. Um, you had a friend named Peter who was also a dog handler in Germany. In some ways, his story is emblematic of the isolation you felt while doing your work there. What happened to Peter?
4: Well, um, it was Christmas Eve, and, and of course, we're always uh, we have MPI or CID with us all the time, just about uh, because for security reasons, uh, both our dogs and I are, you know, both the dog handler and the dogs some were threatened, and it's a uh, so. Peter was at Christmas Eve having a good time and asked me to come down. He was drinking some Jack Daniels, and unfortunately, Peter died of uh, uh, alcohol overdose, and a lot of it was the loneliness that, you know, is incurred because you can't go to the PX. You can't go to movies. You have to have security. At 20 years old, you're isolated from your own fellow GI. So it is, you know, it was a tough thing. You had to be mentally tough, and, and uh, I'm glad I persevered.
2: You're listening to CPR's Colorado Matters. We're speaking with Army veteran Kent Cruz. Several ceremonies will be held in the state to honor veterans who served during the Vietnam War era. Cruz was a dog handler as as the war wound down. You had a very special relationship with your dog during the war. Tell us about Sam.
4: Well, Sam was the first female dog that graduated from the sensory uh, drug program at Fort Gordon, Georgia, and she was also a mine and tunnel dog in Vietnam. So I was pleased that she served her country well. Um, I wish I, I know now they have a program for, for soldiers that can get their dogs that were their companions out. And that is something that is so great. Um, unfortunately, in my time, uh, my dog was valued around $16,000 by the U.S. government. So it was transferred to U.S. Customs in Frankfurt where she served out the last two years of her life.
2: $16,000.
4: Right, $16,000. And um, they were very valuable. One time Sam swallowed the heroin or the um, the, the hashish package, and she had to be operated on it. I was very scared that she she died on the table. I may owe Uncle Sam a lot of money. But, um, yeah, I now see that the Army has a program for get to have the handlers get with their dogs when they're released. and. And also the dog program for, for men that have PTSD. It's it, These are the kind of things that we really need uh, for our veterans today to, to help them as any way we can and give them the stability to be, you know, citizens that are can enjoy life after their service.
2: What was it like for you to come back home in 1974 and, and back to civilian life?
4: Well, it was still animosity. the 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 Vietnam Paris Peace Talks were were concluding, what have you. But uh, um, I I didn't feel comfortable in my uniform at that time. I just wanted to blend in with everybody, so I kind of I out processed at Fort Jackson in South Carolina and and just left my uniform in a, a greyhound bus station. But you know, I, I think now that we can look at, you know, what's happening and, and this, this ceremony that's happening Friday and the, the other ceremony. It's, it's just something that I think that the veterans, Vietnam era veterans, whether they were there in Vietnam or served as a support here in, in states, It's Their time has come for for a ceremony like this, and I applaud the efforts uh, that uh, Congressman Perlmutter has put this together.
2: And these ceremonies uh, across the country began in 2012 and run through 2025. What do they mean to you?
4: Well, they mean that there is closure in a way, that we can't – we're appreciated by other people, you know, not only by our own brethren, the GIs that serve, but family, friends. Outside community, it's um, you know we didn't need a ticker tape parade, but we didn't need to have some of the stuff that came down on us um, when we were out processed. So, I, I just think this is something that's closure. I get to meet other veterans that I hadn't seen in a while, and I I think this is this is just great. I'm looking so forward to this uh, this Friday.
2: Do you think these ceremonies will heal those feelings that you feel forgotten from, your, you know, from the war and from your service?
4: Well, I, I don't, I'm not sure about forgotten, but I do know that there was some animosity and it's a time, like you said, it is a time for healing. And I think if we can all come together, and I, I just would love to hug a bunch of these guys. I, I I felt as a drug dog handler, I wasn't part of them, and I felt isolated. But I, I really want to be part of the this experience. And I, I tell you, I'm just, I'm just so excited that, uh, that something like this can happen, and so I can see my my fellow brother-in-arms and, and enjoy some camaraderie that is long overdue.
2: Kent, thanks for being with us.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Vietnam-era veteran Kent Cruz of North Glen speaking with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. He'll be honored at a ceremony Friday, part of an ongoing national commemoration of Vietnam vets. There are photos of Cruz and of Daniel Barber of Lakewood, who we heard from earlier, at cprnews.org. There are some formidable female sleuths in fiction, Miss Marple, Kinsey Milhone, heck, even Jessica Fletcher. It's no small task to create a character that can live up to the likes of those three. Enter Celine Watkins. She's a very elegant private investigator, according to Denver author Peter Heller. His new suspense novel is called Celine, and welcome back to the program.
3: It's great to be here.
0: Celine is based on someone you know, but before I have you reveal who, Describe this character for us because she she 's larger than life,
3: and I think of her as like the most interesting woman in the world <laughs> well uh, she 's very elegant. she was born in Paris uh, just before the war. Her dad was a banker in Morgan's over there. his name was Harry Watkins, and um, the Germans were coming, so she and her two sisters and her mother fled a couple of months before they marched on paris and she arrived in Manhattan. And all she wanted to do at age seven was be in the French resistance. She would go around Manhattan listening to groups of people trying to decide who was a Nazi spy. And she grew up, she went to college, she got out, got married early, had kids. Uh, So that kind of squelched her ambition maybe to be in the CIA or to be James Bond, which is what she really wanted to do. But she began working for a detective agency as a homemaker and then got her PI license and almost immediately after getting her license the FBI contacted her she was that good she was as that a good private investigator and she is able to move
0: in highly uh, sort of edified circles
3: Right. Uh, The reason the FBI contacted her is because they didn't have an agent who could – they wanted to catch a guy who had perpetrated a rather large fraud on the Bank of New York and they didn't – they thought he was somewhere in southern Connecticut around Old Greenwich where his family lived and they didn't have an agent who could mingle with a silk stocking set over there. And so they contacted Celine who went up there in her old Volvo. And uh, you might want to reveal who she is. Let's do that now. So she,
0: she's sometimes called the Prada P.I. And the reason the backstory of this character is so thorough is because she's based on someone in your life. Who, who is it?
3: Right. So Celine is my mom. And my mom died two and a half years ago. I was devastated. I was very close to her. And I think I wrote the novel just so I could hang out with her for another year. Oh. So the, the, the FBI story is true. They contacted her. She made us some calls. She found out that, like, this guy's aunt played tennis with her aunt in Woodstock or something in Vermont. She figured out where he might be. She drove up there. She spied on this guy with her opera glasses. This is, this is true. He came out of his horse property. you got to picture white rail fences, big old clapboard house. He got into his little sports coupe, and mom followed him. And they had a high speed car chase in the environs of Darien, Connecticut. And I imagine it was probably 40 miles an hour. <laughs> you know, I don't know, not on two <laughs> wheels. But finally, the guy, he, he was so intrigued. It's like, who is this little woman who can barely see over the steering wheel? Uh, why is she following me? So he pulled over. She walked up, click, 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 her pumps on the pavement. She said, Franklin, What you're doing is wrong and it's not good for your family. It's not good for you. It's not decent. And we've got to make this right. So what we're going to do is I'm going to follow you back to your house and then you'll get in my car and we'll drive back down to the Bank of New York and we'll settle this thing. And he did. Her powers of her. Her. her, her moral authority was so persuasive that the guy did it and it's something that i ran into a lot growing up <laughs> indeed your mother
0: and thus the character of Celine in your new novel peter heller has this amazing knack to just confront bad guys and disarm them with her words and Celine in this book is in her late 60s into her early 70s and so i suppose there's there's something about her that might be disarming.
3: She was, uh, both Celine in the book and my mother, um, always met people right where they were. She, she never, she could talk to, what she, what she found out was after they put the cuffs on this guy, the special agents at the Bank of New York, she said she never wanted to see that face again. It was so sad. So she decided not to do perp work what she and her husband ended up focusing on was finding missing people and reuniting birth families like if you were a 15-year-old girl you had a baby it was taken by the state 20 years later either the mother or the child wanted to find each other that's what they did it was cold cases often with sealed records and they were crack investigators they had like a 96% find rate and they reunited over 100 birth families and they did it pro bono for people that couldn't afford an investigator and so mom could anseline could you know talk to homeless people to addicts, never patronized, always, you know, met people right where they were. And it was disarming. I mean, they had county clerks with sealed records that would meet my mother and Celine in the bathroom and hand files under, you know, between stalls, you know, just because she was persuasive, right? Yeah. yeah.
0: I, I, I think it's fascinating how blended Celine is and your mother is, the character and and your mom. And it makes me wonder if, if this is really a novel or if it's right. more of a biography of a very yeah. interesting woman who happened to raise you.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I could have written a memoir, but, you know, the novel is way more fun. I mean, I could conflate stories, um, you know, things that happened to her sisters, you know, I made happen to her in the novel. <clears throat> I can embellish. But there was so much about my mother that you didn't need to embellish. She was a wonderful artist, and she used a lot of skulls and bones and... <clears throat> her art was displayed throughout her loft on the right on the dock by the Brooklyn Bridge is where she lived. And the window washer became so fascinated with her art that, one, that he came back two days later with a skull in a bucket and <laughs> said, uh, Mrs. Hellett, don't ask. I put that in the book. You know, it's like so she quickly covered it in gold leaf and it stands on a pedestal looking elegant by the door. And she could shoot. My my mother was a crack shot Uh she would disappear for weeks at a time. So I don't really know exactly what all she did, but things would reveal themselves. We were driving in Idaho. We had we had said goodbye to her sister who was dying of cancer. We were both very sad. We weren't talking much. We were driving through Haley, Idaho, and mom said, Hey, Pete, pull over, will you? And it was a it was a building that said Dick's guns. And she walks in. Okay, you gotta pump you know clack 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 of the pumps this guy's cleaning a handgun on the back counter he's in coveralls and he's kind of watching her she leans over the counter starts looking at these handguns her bracelets like clicking on the glass he said can i can i see that one it was like this honking big cold 45 and he said a gift right And he said no uh it's for me <laughs> and he said well you might want to start with something a little smaller like these 22s over there and she said no i'd like to try this so she picked it up she made a stance I could see the guy's thoughts. He was like, hmm, she must watch a lot of cop shows. Pretty good. And then he was so intrigued. He was like, let's go shoot this thing. I'm about to close. We get in his Bronco, go up to this gully above Haley, Idaho. He sets up a log with a bunch of cans of bottles, like seven of them. He's very patronizing, showing her how to rack the gun. She's very patient. I was just watching all this. And she just picked up the gun went, went, bam, 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 bam. Every bottle and can just, you know, shattered. You know, flew in the air. She was a
0: good shot. She was, yeah. And again, this is the basis for Celine in your new novel. And uh, at the heart of this is a disappearance. Right. So someone comes knocking on her door, desperate to find her father, who may either be dead or just missing. Right. And, and this brings her out west, where the this man has disappeared. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what brings celine west
3: right so this this young woman 's father disappeared over twenty years before he was a na- famous National Geographic photographer. He was doing a story on grizzly bears in Yellowstone, and he disappears and all evidence points to a bear mauling, but to this young woman, things don 't add up, and so she finds out about Celine, contacts her, and asks if she would help find her father. So, Celine heads west with her Watson, Pete, who's a seventh generation Maine Islander, where, you know, reticence is like the state bird. He doesn't say much. They call him the quiet American in the family. And uh, they're, they're sort of like good cop, bad cop. they kind of like the cop that talks and the one that doesn't. <laughs> they borrow uh, Celine's son's camper and they head up to Yellowstone. And then uh, and it just gets pretty much, um, you know, it's a page turner from there on. <laughs> in, in the background
0: of this story is 9 11. Right. And the attacks of that
3: period. Why is that in the backdrop? Well, I think Selene is dealing... I mean, the book ends up being... I mean, it's a really fun mystery, sure, you know, but it ends up really being about broken families, about uh, daughters looking for their fathers, about mothers looking for their children. It's about loss. It's about making meaning, you know, um, with uh, a lot of loss. And so I think setting it, you know, right after nine eleven was a way to sort of set the story in a context of a greater loss, of a country uh, dealing with its grief uh, the way she is.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Denver novelist Peter Heller. You might know him from The Painter, The Dog Stars. His latest is called Celine, and it's a suspense novel whose main character, Celine, is based on his mother, who in real life was a private investigator. How do you think she would feel about the book? Um, it, it strikes me that your mom was probably a pretty opinionated person.
3: <laughs> she was. Uh, she definitely had ideas of what ought and not, ought and uh, what not to be done. Uh, she um, would have been so tickled. You know, I sent the manuscript to her husband Pete, who was her partner in all investigation.
0: And who is the partner of Celine in this? Yeah. In this novel.
3: And as I said, he's this old Mainer. He's like 86 years old. I sent him the manuscript. He never says much. So I I get this call like two days later. He's like, I read the book. Long pause. I'm like, OK. I have two criticisms. OK. You know, one, she would have never gone out to meet the assassin in her bathrobe with her cup of coffee and the Glock in the shoulder holster uh, without putting on full face. (laughs) And I had her just dashing on some lipstick, you know. And then he said, you know, the second thing is, she never took my arm. We always held hands. I thought that was so romantic.
0: This case brings Celine out west, as we said. And when she arrives in Denver, she meets up with her son. Right. I have to wonder if that's you. (laughs) So your, your mom is in this book. Is Peter Heller in this book as well?
3: Well, he lives on a lake on the west side of town, just like I do. He, he kind of um, looks like me. His wife is named Kim, as my wife is. Uh, so I guess I didn't try and disguise him too much. But, you know, I, I probably won't sue myself, so I think I'm all right. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to say
0: that there's a lot of Peter Heller in this book, yeah. in addition to his mom. You said that this was, in some ways, uh, how you could spend time with her right? Um, after her death. You also said that this book is about grief. Was it a healing process to write the book?
3: Did it help you with your grief? It was so wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it really, you know, when I write, um, I get completely transported and, you know, I'll be sitting in the coffee shop and I'll start, I'll laugh out loud and people probably think I'm crazy or I'll have, you know, tears like dripping off my chin under the, under the table. And I, I know people in the coffee shop are thinking that poor son of a gun, you know, he's, probably going through a bad divorce or whatever. But I I get completely uh, transported and completely enthralled in the work. And so I really felt like I was with her for, for the better part of a year, which was so wonderful. And one thing I discovered was that the animus that drove her life and her sort of MO was that she was just having a ton of fun. That's what I realized when I was yeah. writing the book. She was doing really hard work. She was doing important work for people. You know, it was very, very important to these her clients that these people find their family. It, it, it could make someone whole again, a feeling of wholeness. There, there can be, when you get separated at birth from birth parents or birth children, there can be a huge aching vacuum. And she was really about... Healing that and and giving people families and so you know I think her work was 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 really important. That's what it was about. But she also had just such a great time. I mean, she could she could put on disguises. Once she went to a diplomat's party disguised as a man. Uh, you know, I mean, she had a lot of investigative skills. Very briefly, in about the last thirty yeah. seconds, is this a character you want to revisit? I mean, she she really
0: does seem cinematic.
3: I don't see how I can stay away from her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe every other novel.
0: Thanks so much for being with us.
3: It's so great. Thank you, Ryan.
0: Denver author Peter Heller's new suspense novel is Celine. You can read the first chapter at cprnews.org. And it is based, as we said, on his mother, who was a private investigator in real life. <laughs> And that's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and on Facebook we're CPR News. Glad you could spend time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio.)